The first reading is from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The second reading is from Luke 9, 57 to 62. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, oh Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Well, we come to the last in the series, Alternative to Hope. And today it's an alternative that is somewhat unlike all the others. It's not a philosophy. It's not a way of thinking at all. It's something that is good. In fact, something that is crucial for us in our lives as humans. In fact, that's why it may be the most powerful alternative to Christian hope that there is. The eighth and last alternative to Christian hope is community and family. That's right, community and family. Why might it be the most powerful alternative to Christian hope there is? Because community and family are fundamental to what it is to be human. The human being is, in the word of David Brooks' best-selling book, the social animal. We need other people. We're social beings from the beginning. We begin life as helpless infants and become, remain highly dependent on others for decades. Even when we become mature individuals, we are still driven by our need to belong. Our identities are shaped by and defined in relation to the other. We may have multiple identities because we belong to multiple groups. Yes, community and family are fundamental to what it is to be human. If you want a sign of the power of family and community, just look at the two largest memorials here at St. Philip's Church. Although St. Philip's is a church set aside for the things of God, the things of family and community are here as well. Look at this showy memorial here. 
uh, to Robert and Sophia Campbell, who were once great ones in the colony and in this church in the first half of the 19th century. And this rather expensive, dominating memorial was erected by their children, as the inscription puts it, and I quote, in humble gratitude to the Heavenly Father for having vouchsafed to them earthly parents, members of the Apostolic Church of England, whose manner of life was shown unto them the more excellent way, which St. Paul has described, illuminated by faith, hope, and charity. Family. And who can miss the Great War Memorial further along the side there with the two flags and the inscription to the glory of God for king and country, listing all those names with the words underneath in honour of the men who nobly answered the call, 1914-1918. A memorial to the power of belonging, belonging to the nation, or perhaps even more broadly to the empire as imagined. Although I believe that many who fought in that war in the thick of battle were motivated not so much by nationalism, but loyalty to their mates, to comrades. Community. And our social nature has not just affected who we are, it's changed the physical world around us. It's the reason why human beings are so dominant on earth. Community and family, they are so essential. So what are they doing on a list of alternative to hope? It's because their very power and centrality to being human is why they're on the list. Although the story is not straightforward, as we'll see. I have three headings. Community and family critiqued. Community and family affirmed community and family fulfilled. Critiqued, affirmed, fulfilled. First, community and family critiqued. Stanley Hauerwas is an eminent American theologian and ethicist. Some years ago, while at Princeton University, where he was receiving an award, he was asked this question. Professor Hauerwas, do you believe in family values? His reply, hell no, I'm a Christian. Now, Stanley can, that may sound harsh, and Stanley is, is often provocative, by the way, he's often provocative, but he's actually reflecting the stark tone of Jesus himself. The stark tone of Jesus himself. Take Jesus' words as recorded in Luke chapter 14, verse 25 and 26. Luke 14, 25, 26. Quote, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Coming to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers, it's just even their own life, cannot be my disciple. Now, I don't have to tell you what's wrong with that. What kind of religious teacher tells people to hate their family or even life itself? Jesus was given to sharp and arresting speech, but this is right out there. Interestingly, in the Gospel of Matthew's Gospel, I think it's the same saying, is remembered in a less shocking form. This is Matthew 10, verse 37. Quote, this is Jesus speaking, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, I think, however, what Luke has is what probably was originally said. It's too shocking to be otherwise, it seems to me. But I think Matthew is arguably right in remembering, or rather whoever told Matthew, remembering 
the meaning of what he said. To hate something here is not absolute. It means, not just hate them, it means compared to me, let them be hated. It's, it's, that, it's got a in a very striking way. That is, not love them more than me. Now this saying remains shocking even if you take the slightly more moderate form. When you remember that in the society of Jesus' day, family was of immense significance. It was the family that gave you your identity. It was the family that gave you your religion. It was your family that gave you your place in the world. Even your job, I guess. And the obligations to family were high, <clears throat> not just culturally, but as the law of God commanded. <coughs> Verse tw um, Exodus 20, 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And here comes Jesus and upsets all that by putting himself bang in the middle of it all. <clears throat> Anyone who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves father, son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And this is not the only time that Jesus does something like this. There are, for example, the two incidents remembered in Luke 9, 59, we had for our second reading. In one incident, Jesus says to a man, follow me. And the man replies, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. <clears throat> Maybe he means his father has died. He must perform the most important and binding obligation of a son. Or perhaps he means he must fulfill his obligation to his aged father and wait until he's dead before leaving him and following Jesus. Anyway, whatever it is, what's Jesus' reply? Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The other incident is when someone says to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. It seems fair enough, but Jesus dismisses it. No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. Plus, there's the way that Jesus seems to brush off his own family. In Mark 3, they come to see him, and they're worried about him, they can take charge of him, and uh, there's a great crowd in this room, and Jesus inside, and they send message to Jesus, and the word is, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. What does Jesus do? Quote, he looked around at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother and brother and sister. Redefining his family as those who do God's will has apparently been quite brusque about his actual family, or perhaps not his actual family. What's going on here? Well, what's going on here is that Jesus is relativizing one of the most powerful loyalties that humans have. He is relativizing one of the most powerful loyalties that humans have. He is demanding a loyalty to him even above, even above family and community. He is refusing to be a mere addition to what's already there. Hell no, I'm a Christian. And this is necessary. I'll tell you why it's necessary. Because it's all too easy to let family or community be, be a, a, a universe of meaning and significance. So that in effect there's no place in your life for the call of God. It's, it's so easy for your family or your community to be, to be a universe of meaning and significance that there's no place left in your life for the call of God. And Jesus' shocking words challenge that in ways that are unsettling. Now, those of you who are 
modern Westerners may sit more lightly on the pull of family obligations and loyalty than other cultures and times. We mustn't underestimate the radical, we mustn't underestimate the radical power of Jesus' words about his preeminence, or worse still, use them to partly justify our own Western individualism. No, no. Well, that's my first heading, community and family critiqued. Now, I said earlier that uh, this story is not straightforward, and it isn't, for my second heading is community and family affirmed. One, community and family critiqued. Two, community and family affirmed. It's important to realise that what it is to be a disciple of Jesus in practice undergoes a change within the New Testament itself. That's right. Within the New Testament, what it means to be a disciple in practice changes. And so does it affect the shape of obedience change. The change I have in mind is this. After Jesus' death and resurrection, and as Christian communities sprung up all over the Roman world, it was no longer necessary, nor possible, literally to follow Jesus. As you could follow him on his way to Jerusalem in the gospel, as it does in the Gospel of Luke. And that's why the New Testament does not turn Jesus' words to his followers during his time on his physical presence into absolute rules for all time. In fact, it's almost the opposite. Surprisingly, the New Testament, even at some points, teaches what looks like the opposite of Jesus' teaching. Take literally what Jesus said about abandoning your family? Not now. In instructing Timothy about the care of widows in the church, Paul, in passing, makes this comment, 1 Timothy 5.8, in anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Got that? Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No, let the dead bury the dead here. And this text isn't alone. In other places, the apostles teach husbands to love their wives, to raise their children, their wives to manage their household and so on. Also teach believers to respect the wider community and its leaders, even give honour to the pagan Roman emperor. These are all affirmations of family and community. Now it's true that Paul commends the unmarried life. And it's true that in Christian history, some have sought literally to obey Jesus' words in the Gospels by removing themselves from ordinary society and family life and living in solitude or special disciplined communities. And can I say, although they may be alien to us Protestants, in Christian history, these movements have at times been remarkably fruitful for Christ. In fact, the people say the evangelization of Europe was achieved by such special disciplined communities. But the vast majority of believers live in the communities, living in their families. So did Jesus' word have nothing to, nothing to say to them? No, we still need to hear, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That is, even as we affirm community and family, we must hear the critique of them. 
even as we affirm them, we must hear the critique of them because of their potential to swallow everything up. It's even possible for churches to get this wrong. No doubt in reaction to the society around them, some churches so emphasize marriage and family that they effectively demote the unmarried members to second-class citizenship. I don't think I've found it here in this parish, but let me know if you have, but I don't think so, but maybe. And sometimes, certainly, the concern for family can dull the edge of Christian discipleship and even be a cover for materialism. So even as we affirm family and community, we must hear the critique of them. In fact, it's even possible for Christian, for the identity gained through your community or family to trump Christian identity entirely with disastrous results. I can think of no more terrible example of this than what happened way back last century, April and, Ma and July back in 1974 in the Central African country of Rwanda. During a civil war, Rwanda collapsed into chaos and horrific violence followed. Members of the Hutu ethnic minority killed a million members of the Tutsi ethnic group and also members of their own more moderate Hutu group as well. Right? Ethnic group, tribe led to violence. Now here's the thing. This took place in a country where 90%, that's it, 90% of the population identified as part of a Catholic, Protestant or Seventh-day Adventist church. It was one of Africa's most Christian regions. Now that's an extreme case. But think of all the other times when the dark side of community or family trumps Christ. When Christians have been affected by racism or snobbery, classism, or sexism, or elitism, or ethnic resentments, and the like. Yes, we need both to affirm and critique community and family. Affirm and critique, lest they become an alternative to Christian hope. Which leads to my third heading, community and family fulfilled. We've had one, community and family critiqued. We've had two, community and family fulfilled. And now thirdly, community and family fulfilled. The content of Christian hope can be expressed in many ways. One of my favorites, in fact, comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and following, where Paul writes of that day when Christ, having reigned at the right hand of God, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, the last enemy to be destroyed being death. And then as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28, and I quote, when he has done this, the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. I love that evocative phrase, God may be all in all. The fulfillment of all creation, of all being in God. Christian hope as the triumph of God. Not, not, not the end of creation, but its fulfillment in God. But Christian hope can also be communal. Communal. It's about the fulfillment of us as social animals. Christian hope speaks of community and family fulfilled. There are many places in the New Testament which express this. Let me just give you two. One is in the words of Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 8, 
where he prays for his readers, and I quote, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. The hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, in his saints. The hope to which he's called is not just the hope of his glorious inheritance, the hope to which he's called with riches of God's glorious inheritance in his holy people, when God dwells among his people in community. It's a communal hope. And the other place which speaks very powerfully of the Christian hope as community and family is that unfulfilled, is that unforgettable vision in the last chapters of the book of Revelation. Let me read again part of it. It's worth hearing again, I think. Quote, Mr. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, literally among the humans, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. There it is. Look, God's dwelling place is among the humans. And he will dwell with them. And they'll be his people. And he'll be their God. Christian hope is community and family fulfilled. Fulfilled. And the point is, even while we remain embedded in our families and communities, we are to set our hope fully upon the time when the family and community will be fulfilled, when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Even though we remain embedded, we set our heart for hopes fully upon that time when they are fulfilled at his coming. Now, finally, there are a couple of obstacles, however, to achieving that. I want to mention just two. Why it's hard to set your hope fully on these things. One is, our hope is something we do not yet have. So we can't see it. We can't experience it. As Paul tells the Romans in chapter 8, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. For who hopes what you already have? If we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. But what that means is that this fulfillment of family and community in Christian hope is less tangible, less upfront, less experienced than community and family have right now. And that's a problem. That's a problem. I can't solve it. But we need to be aware of it and consciously not let it dull our focus. And the second reason why this wonderful hope can be less powerful in our lives is that it's actually hard to imagine what it will be like. In fact, often biblical descriptions are only what it will not be like. That vision of Revelation I mentioned before is a case in point. The idea of a city coming down like a bride sounds wonderful. Then, then it says this, declaring that God's place among the humans. It then goes on to say, quote, this is, the this is the voice from the throne, the voice of God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the older order of things has passed away. Now that sounds wonderful. But it's still saying what there will not be. Right? What there will not be. What the positive will be like 
we can't imagine. And that's a problem. In fact, sometimes this description by negatives can be a bit off-putting, to be frank. Take Jesus' words in Mark 12, where he's responding to an objection to the very idea of the resurrection of the dead. His question is presenting with a, they think, a trap, a scenario. In this scenario, the one woman, they say, marries each of seven brothers, one after the other. The brothers keep dying, somewhat suspiciously to my mind, actually. <laughs> they ask him, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since seven were married to her? Jesus reply, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. When the dead rise, they'll neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. So, no marriage at the resurrection of the dead. It really is only until death us do part. But if you've been happily married, you may be disappointed to hear this. It's tempting to think the Christian hope will be somehow less than the life we experience on earth. We know what it's not, but therefore it's very important. This is very important. These negatives are not because we'll be less, but more in the age to come. The negatives is not because there'll be less, but more in the age to come. No more marriage, not because we'll be less related, less involved in relationships, because there'll be more. There'll be a depth of human relationship so much wider and deeper, so that even marriage will then fade. Not less relationship, but more. For those of you who are not married or have, other, have had difficult times, this makes you come as a comfort, as a hope. So, although we cannot see this future now, and although we can often only speak it in terms of what it's not, we can be assured that our present human capacities are but a faint shadow of what they will be when brought to their fullest purity and expression in the presence of God. And the same will be true of our fellowship with and enjoyment of God and his people in the glorious world that awaits us. So then, even as we remain embedded in our families and communities, we also attend to Jesus' critique of family and community and so set our hope fully on the time when family and community will be fulfilled when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. That way, family and community will not be an alternative to Christian hope.